This morning, we are going to deal with this topic, the unfinished task. What does it mean to reach the world for Christ? If you'll take your notes out, um, we're going to look at one verse this morning primarily, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And in it, I want to ask you the question, is reaching the world for Christ just something we kind of say, you know, because it's Christianese, we kind of believe it in our head, but it isn't something that we actually want to to do? Is it just a catchy slogan? Is, is, is there a role for every one of us in this task of global missions? How is this different from local evangelism? So today you've heard stories. I want to take you to the, to the scriptures and show you how this all fits together. But for me, this is more than just a, a missions moment. I don't know how you can watch that video and not have tears flowing down your face. Now you say, well, Erwin, pretty much you talk about kids or missions and tears flow for you, so we get you. But, but for you, what is it that moves your heart? When you think of the gospel, look at the pattern of Jesus' life. He sees something, like he sees the multitudes, and then it always says this little phrase, and he was what? Moved with compassion. And today, I want to fill your hearts with compassion, not pity, compassion. The other thing, no matter what I say, no matter how passionate I say it, remember these words, it's about grace, not guilt today. Because you're going to hear me, I'm going I'm to hit you hard with, I think every single one of you can play a part. And I'm going to give you three specific ways to be involved. But I also realize that God works different ways in different people at different times and different periods of your life, and it may not be for everybody tomorrow or the next day. Okay? Deal? So when we look at the Scriptures and we think about evangelism and missions, I want to define our terms, first of all, because we're involved with two sides of the same coin. We believe in local evangelism, and we believe in global missions. That's not an either-or proposition. And so if you take your notes out, what is local evangelism? That's what we do in our local area here. We don't travel very far. We go feed people on the second Monday night of the month. Uh, We share the gospel through Camp ABF. We play basketball on Wednesday nights to build relationships with sometimes with people who are far from God for the purpose of sharing our faith. It's how we connect with people locally. That's local evangelism. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, go and make disciples. We, we buy into that. So I'm not suggesting that today's message is about that. What I am suggesting today's mission is about global world missions, Acts 1-8. And so God gives us in this one little verse an idea about how to go and how to reach the world for Christ. And I think that you're familiar with it, but let's look at it on the screen together. But you will receive power, dunamis is the Greek word, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so you're asking yourself, where do I fit in that that paradigm. In fact, you've seen this graphic before, this, this concentric circles deal with Jerusalem at the center, then Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. 
What I want to challenge you to think today is to look at this verse with a different paradigm. And I believe there are three aspects that, of each of those four areas that we need to think about. One has to do with cultural differences between Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. And then there's geographical differences in those four areas. And then there's relationship differences in those four areas. And so you're going to find yourself to say today, asking yourself, where do I fit in God's plan for reaching the world for Christ? Now, what I'm not saying is that you can't be, quote, a missionary in the workplace. We get all that. We understand relational evangelism. But today, I want to stretch you a bit to say, could it be that God's calling you to do something that is so out of your comfort zone, you go, yeah, that's never going to happen. Let's just suspend the, yeah, that's never going to happen thought just for another 24 minutes. Fair enough? All right. So let's look at Jerusalem. So that's the people closest to us. These are the people with whom we are culturally identifying with, all right? If you're a golfer, you identify with golfers. If you're a CPA, you identify with a CPA. If you're into basketball, you, you know, if you're into food, you're, into, you're a foodie. There are people that you connect with for a variety of reasons, all right? And so the, your Jerusalem are people who are culturally like you, and they're geographically close, and they're known to you. So culturally, like you, geographically close to you, and relationship, they're known to you. If you want to look at the book of Acts and divide it in three sections, Acts 1 through 7, those first seven chapters is all about the Jerusalem piece. And then we get to Judea and Samaria, that's in Acts uh, chapter 8, verses tw- eight uh, chapters 8 through 12. And then if you want to do the uttermost parts of the earth, that's chapter 13 and beyond. That's how you divide up the book of Acts. 1 to 7 is Jerusalem, chapters 8 through 12 is Judea and Samaria, and then uttermost parts of the earth is chapter 13 to 28. Now, Spurgeon said this, plead with God for men, plead with men for God. My question is, who are you close to that you're, you're wanting to plead their case on God's behalf? That you say, God, if this would ever happen. I'm guessing some of the people in your Jerusalem are your own family members. It's your mom, it's your dad, it's an aunt and an uncle. And maybe it's a son or a daughter or a granddaughter or a grandchild that maybe has yet to come to faith in Christ. That's your Jerusalem. So on your notes right now, in this very moment while I'm speaking, I want you to write one name down right now, everybody in this auditorium. One person that, that you know personally, not someone you don't know, someone you say, I know they are far from Christ and maybe God will use me. Now you say, if I write that name down, do I have to go call them today? No, no, I'm just saying write a name down. I'm going to make it very, very easy for you in the first 10 minutes. Then we get to something else. All right. Write that name down, right? That's your Jerusalem. This group, Jerusalem will cost you your time. I mean, it'll cost you some time if you, if you want to be involved in your Jerusalem. Next, it says Judea. Now, these are people who are still culturally like us, but not necessarily geographically close to you, all right? And we probably don't know them yet. They may be geographically close, but they're probably a little farther away. Now, that could start with people who you work with, all right? They are the parents of the kids that you sit and watch endless hours of soccer, little minions chasing a little ball in little swarms for endless hours. That's my slight commentary on soccer. I'll leave it at that. Um, 
This may be people that you meet on a plane. This may be people that you meet on vacation. These are people in your Judea, all right? These are people that will require you to start a conversation. This will cost you your comfort. It causes you to stretch yourself by asking a question, by making an introduction. Now, you know that for me, I cannot get on a plane and just read a book and put the headphones on. I always get an aisle seat for the following two reasons. It's then I can get out quicker to go to the bathroom. And secondly, I then have a captive audience. They have to climb over me to get away from me. Now, I'm not really that obnoxious, to be honest with you, but I do like the fact that generally I can engage someone in conversation, and before they know it, I've got them out of their book, their headphones are off, and we engage in a conversation. Because here's a simple fact about human beings. Everybody wants to talk about themselves. So when I ask them what they do and what they do, I get all these questions. I've sometimes spent three hours. One time I talked to a guy who launches satellites for a living. And I learned more about launching satellites than any human being should ever want to know in their life. But he was so into it. And I, almost, I thought he was going to diagram napkins for me about and take it home. And he would sign it. But that conversation led to Jesus eventually because they'll always ask this fateful question, oh, by the way, what do you do? And then I have a decision where I tell the truth or lie. No, I, I, I tell them the truth. I, I, you give some version of I engage minds with the greatest literature of our day, young minds. What's that literature? Well, it's called the Bible. Oh, you're a preacher? As of a matter of fact, I am. No way, you know, that kind of a thing. So the bottom line is, who is your Judea? Who are you going to engage with? You know, that word go, interesting how often that's used. It's in God. It's in good news. It's in the gospel. It's in Golgotha. Go. Thirdly, the next area is Samaria. Now, these are people that you're not culturally like. They're not anything like you. Geographically, they may be close or far. That's not the biggest area, but they're definitely not people you would hang out with. These are not people you would want to connect with. In fact, biblically, who were the Samaritans? Because this is an interesting thing that he says that reaching the world for Christ involves people who are close to you that you know, involves people who are not close to you that are like you but you don't know, and now it's people that are not culturally like you at all, and in fact, the Samaritans were what? to the Jews of their day. You know the story, right? Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile, right? And so they were a mixed breed. They were not pure, uh, pure Jewish lineage. That caused an unbelievable racial conflict between Jews and Samaritans. Ironically, there was more conflict between Jews and Samaritans than the Jews who were occupied by the Roman Empire, by the Ro- Roman uh, uh, soldiers. There, and in fact, in the Old Testament, that Samaria connection, you couldn't get from the south of Ju- Judah to the north of Israel without going through Samaria. If we are looking at that correctly, how did the Jews view the Samaritans? They were what? Did they like, oh boy, bring them on, the more the merrier. No. They what? They despised each other. 
They despised each other. So if you get involved with the first group, with Jerusalem, it'll cost you your time. To be involved in Judea, it'll cost you your comfort. But in Samaria, it's going to cost you your negative stereotypes. Okay, I'm going to say it. So who are your Samaritans in your life? Because nobody who's a Christ follower wants to admit in their heart of hearts that there's anybody in their life that they despise. But you know there are people that you definitely don't want to spend time with. So in this political season, I suggest that the local Samaritan in your life, for you, if you're a Republican, is your neighbor the Democrat or vice versa. All right? Or maybe you're pro-life. And it's your pro-choice friends. Or maybe you're a conservative. And it's your liberal friends. Now, by the way, I could pick liberal and go the other way. So it doesn't matter where you find yourself on the spectrum. There's somebody on the other side of what you believe. It gets a little harder when you think about being a parent. And some of the kids your friends hang out with that aren't great influences on your kids. For some of your kids, maybe the Samaritan are those kids who have led them to be farther away from God than you would have preferred because you think they've been a bad influence. So everybody has a Samaritan in their life. Sometimes that Samaritan is someone not from another race, but from a, an ideological viewpoint, and that's what I'm trying to get at. For most of us, we think it has to be a racial thing, but I think it's an ideological thing in many cases for our Samaritans today. When I was coaching youth football back in the prehistoric age, back in, when they had dinosaurs, that's for these young ones here, um, when my son was, he's now 29, when he was 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, I was a football coach. And I had 25 little young bodies running around, hitting each other. Back then, uh, there was not concussion protocols and all of that. But there was one particular guy that I just didn't like. He was just a jerk. There was no better way to describe it, but he was all into himself and all about winning, and he would cheat to win, and he would do things that weren't according to the rules. And for me, Jerry was my Samaritan. And then, lo and behold, football season's over, travel baseball starting, and that coach also was a travel baseball coach, and he picks my son to be on his travel baseball team. And now I don't have to compete against him I got to sit through 50 games watching him coach my son, and I thought I was just going to throw up. I just thought, this cannot be God's will for our family. And over time, God gave me a heart for this guy who I just despised. There was nothing about his lifestyle that I wanted my son to emulate in any way. And I remember how God had to take the mean-spirited vial that was in my heart. And I believe I had enough guilt of my own, like, you're a pastor, you shouldn't be mean-spirited yourself, you shouldn't return evil with evil, you should be a jerk to the guy. And it took so much of that summer for God to deal with me. 
The reason I want you to spend a little time thinking about your Samar- the Samaritans in your life, because my guess is the issue isn't with them. The issue is with me. The issue is what's in my heart and how I view people. So the fourth area, he says, is the uttermost parts of the earth. The uttermost parts of the earth. Who are those folks? These are folks who are not culturally like us. These are the people that Jim and Barb have spent their lives reaching, Russian-speaking people in Europe and all over the world. They're not culturally close to you. Uh, You don't have any prior relationship with them. And that's the group that if you go to Mexico with us or you go on a mission trip often, you'll be reaching the uttermost parts of the earth. And so who does that in in our ministry? Take this out. It was in your bulletin. These are our global missions partners. These are the 12 missionaries that we're investing in financially and relationally. And we say, we're investing in you to reach the world for Christ. So everybody can have a part in this. And I'll tell you about that when we get to the end of the sermon. But these are the people who are doing that in uh, Indonesia and South Asia and the Middle East and in Russia and in Uganda and Eastern Europe and uh, Ethiopia and Bolivia and on and on and on. That's this is the uttermost parts of the earth group. And so, interesting enough that when does this whole missions thing happen in the Bible? You get to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, and this is the first missionary trip ever recorded that I can find. And it starts with this discussion in Acts 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, and by the way, Antioch's the first place where people were called Christians, just a little sidebar. And there were prophets and teachers, and they mentioned five names, Barnabas, Simeon, also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, those five. And it says, while they were what? They were worshiping the Lord. Do you understand that maybe God's going to call you on a mission trip while you're in a worship service here at ABF singing something like the songs we're singing today? That's amazing. And while they were fasting, that takes a little more out of us, literally. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. By the way, that's where we get that idea of laying hands on someone on a mission trip. It's right from that passage. You want to lay hands on them. There's nothing magical in our hands, but it's saying, hey, we're conferring you. We're sending you. You're our team. That's oftentimes... Well, when we're praying for somebody, I ask you to put your hands out like that. It's symbolic of saying, we're praying over you, with you, we're going with you. And they picked those five. I won't go into all the details, but those five guys represent five different kinds of people. They represent five different kinds of people. Barnabas is a Jew from Cyprus. Where's the first place on the very first missionary they go? They go to Cyprus, his hometown. So people who have contagious thoughts about sharing Christ, they want to share it with the people they're close with, their family and their friends, where they're from. Lucius, the Cyrenian from North Africa. Most people leave. Who's the guy in Luke 23, 26? What did he do? He was carrying what for Jesus? The cross beam. I think that's that guy. And he goes from carrying the literal cross beam for Christ at his crucifixion to many believe He's part of this initial group of believers who are making decisions about the first missionaries that are going out. And then you have Simeon. He's a Ro- his, also named Niger. Niger's a Roman name. So this guy's somehow connected with kind of the Roman group, all right? 
And even though he was a Jew, he hung out with Romans. And then Menaean, he's a political friend of Herod. So this guy's the rich guy who's influential, who's got political connections. He's leveraging those. And then there's Paul, who's Jewish, who's from Tarsus. By the way, connect Paul and where he's from and Jonah and study those two books and then see if there's interesting how God uses Tarsus in people's lives. That's a whole nother uh, deal. Jonah ran away from Nineveh to go to Tarsus, and God got a hold of him. God got a hold of Paul from Tarsus, who changed the world. Interesting connection. He's a trained rabbi. So those two, Barnabas and Saul, are called out, and they go to the ends of the earth. Now, one of the issues is if you go to some foreign country and you don't speak the language, what do you do? Well, you have translators. We had translators in Mexico. Uh, or you learn a language. That's why people go to language school. But in our world today, I want to show you this slide. We have an interesting problem. There's over a billion people in the world who are Bibleists. There's no, not a word, they, they don't have the scripture in their own language. I'm very, I grew up uh, in Huntington, no, I didn't grow up in Huntington Beach, but my first ministry was in Huntington Beach, and we shared the same parking lot with international headquarters for Wycliffe Bible Translators. So I've been into Bible translation for almost 40 years now because of all these missionaries that I came in contact with who were translating the Bible in someone's mother tongue or mother language. Of that billion Bibleist people, uh, we know uh, just, we, we've, we can quantify it, there's 7,102 living languages, all right? So that's how many languages are spoken in the, United, uh, in the world today. Of those, 4,500 languages approximately still have a ton of translation needs in order for the Bible to be translated fully in that language. But the shocking story is that there are 1,778 languages in our world today that there is not one verse of the Bible translated in their mother tongue. And so I want to challenge us to think about how we could reach the whole world through Christ through Bible translation. That's for another day, another time. Now, you say, I get it. I, I'm passionate about my faith, but I got some reservations about this going into another cultural thing, all right? In fact, I want to debunk what I see are four myths about missions and missionaries, all right? I, I think you may have relate to some of these, or maybe you've even thought some of these things, because that's why you're saying, nope, this is not for me. The first myth is that missionaries destroy cultures. Any of you who sat through any sociology class in the 70s or 80s and maybe even the 90s, it's become very fashionable to bash missionaries and what they do to destroy the indigenous culture. I spent a lot of time in, the, uh, in Brazil and in particularly in the Amazon jungle uh, in my previous ministries speaking to missionaries and missionary kids in Brazil. And that's one of the major things that SIL, that's, by the way, SIL is what Wycliffe Bible Translators is known at in other countries. It's the Summer Institute of Linguistics, because the word Bible in another country may not get you through the door to do Bible translation, even though there's literacy things that have to be done, et cetera, et cetera. And so we've heard this deal that missionaries come in and they just trample over the culture. Some of that's just bad history about what happened when uh, there was, the Europeans came to uh, Habitat uh, South America, among other places. But the bottom line is, yes, in the 18 and 1900s, missionaries were the one moral influence in certain 
countries that said, hey, this is just wrong. I'll tell you one story. William Carey, some of you have heard of him in the 1700s, 1800s, um, condemned the practice of sati. Sati is this idea that when a husband died, no matter what the health of the wife was, that she was burned with him in his cremation ceremony, whether she was sick or not. Now, let me get this right. Husband dies, woman's 30 years old, and they're going to burn her with his body because that was the way she was to show love and devotion to the departed husband. So William Carey said, that's messed up. You shouldn't do that. That's wrong. And so, yeah, missions oftentimes in the gospel transforms a culture in ways that we would never have guessed. Think about what's happened in India since then. It's an interesting thing when people criticize the social justice nature of medical missions overseas. Let me just make an observation. It's not the atheists who build hospitals for the least, the last, and the lost. It's Christians. It's people like Mother Teresa. By the way, you know what I think the best model of missions is? Is if you could take the social justice ministry of a Mother Teresa and the evangelistic ability of Billy Graham and wed those two things in one project, that's a winning combination. Sidebar, I think we get to do that in Mexico. We get to build houses for people who have no place to live. And when they are crying, asking, why are you doing this? Because the love of Jesus compels me. When you see those kids in those pictures and they're looking up, did you see the kid touching the shadow boxes that our kids made at ABF during Camp ABF? That's from our kids. Our kids raised over seven, $800 so those bunk beds could be built. Those bedspreads were purchased by our kids here. Someone asked me, well, what does it take to build a house there? We built the smallest house. That's $5,000. We want to build, they have an A house, a B house, a C house, and a D house. We want to build the biggest house next year. That'll be closer to $8,000. Secondly, second myth. If I don't become a career missionary, then I'm just a second-class citizen. Is it an all-or-nothing proposition? There are some people who are going to be called from this group saying, hey, I think I'm going to give my life to missions overseas for my lifetime. But most of you will not be called for a lifetime. But you are called to be a disciple. You are called to make disciples. It was 1976. Uh, I was going to be a junior at Biola University. I flew to the most frozen place on what I thought was on the planet, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. I gathered with over 20,000 college students. I accepted Christ in 1963. But in 1976, I said, God, take me, whatever you want. I thought for sure God was calling me to be a missionary to Italy. I like pizza. I like, I like Italians. I mean, what, how good can this get? Probably bad motives there. Um, but I, I know why Italy. It was just, I think I'm going to Italy. God changed that plan. He had me go cross-culturally a couple years later and reach a group called Junior Hires. That was a cross-cultural experience. I spent many years reaching 
the unreached people of Huntington Beach called junior hires and high schoolers. That's why I have gray hair today. People like you caused that. And, no, I'm just kidding. But I, the deal was in 1976, I said, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I thought it was overseas. But since then, and 16 countries later, and probably over 50 short-term missions trips in the last 38 years, I can tell you for a fact, it never, ever, ever gets old. I've sat in the Amazon River in northern Brazil with missionary kids sitting in inner tubes, hoping that the, that the padania fish don't nibble at our toes, talking to them about miracles that they've seen in their parents' ministry. I've been in Trinidad, Tobago. I've been in China. I've been in Russia. I've been in Mexico. And I'm telling you, when you get out of your comfort zone and you say, God, take me and use me however you want, he'll do it. He will do it. And all the what ifs and the what abouts and buts, God will answer those questions. He's asking for you to be willing. And so you don't have to be a career missionary. You saw 32 of us, four of which gave their stories this, this morning. Write this quote down. Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Hudson Taylor. 1832. Third objection is, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, what does 1 Peter 3.15 say about that? It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. If you want to talk to someone in our church, and I didn't ask permission for him to say that, for me to do this, so I'm hoping that Bill Barry doesn't mind that I'm saying this. He has a very wonderful career doing financial planning, among other things, but he has just gone on staff with another organization, and the whole purpose of that organization is to build relational connections with people for the purpose of sharing Christ. Are, are they calling you an intern? What do they call you? What do you do? What's it called? He's associate staff. That's a fancy word for you do all the work, but they don't pay you a dime, all right? Kind of like interns, right? And he's still going to do his business, but he's got a different, he's got a ministry mindset, all right? Wherever God places you, I believe that you can be ready to make an answer of the hope that's in you. That can be on the golf course, on a plane with your waitress, the guy or girl who cuts your hair, the lawn guys, your neighbors. It's just sharing your story, right? So many of you have fantastic stories. I wish you could bottle your stories, put them on our website so people could hear the story of how God transformed your life. Some of you are in this room today because in the last six months, when Scott says, eyes wide open in front of everybody, I'm all in, and you stood up. Some of our workers at Camp ABF made decisions for Christ. While they were working with our kids, they were all in. Some of you are here in this room and you're going, I don't even know what it means to be all in. Then maybe today is a great day for you to talk to me afterwards. And I can talk to you about how 
Christ can transform your life. Some of you are praying for people that are not yet Christ followers, and yet just be ready. In your time, you'll get to share that story. I'm a big football fan. In, in the past, one of my favorite football players was a guy by the name of Kurt Warner. Does anybody know that name? How many know the name Kurt Warner? For, even for you who are not football fans, if you're into partying, you're going to like this story. How's that for a lead up? Kurt Warner used to play football for the Arizona Cardinals and the St. Louis, now St. Louis Rams, now Los Angeles Rams. The bottom line, he won a Super Bowl, and he's a committed Christ follower. And he was interviewed one time, and they asked him, why can't you Christians, and I quote, shut up about your religion for two minutes? And Kurt Warner, the thing that made him such a great interview is he didn't get defensive. If he was interviewed by Larry King or anybody, he just was so relaxed. And I remember the answer to that question in the interview. He said, well, let's put it this way. What, what happens, what if you were invited to just this awesome party? And man, there's the great food, there's great music, there's, there's really great conversation. The host is unbelievably uh, benevolent. He's just so gracious. What if you're at that party? And how bad of a teammate would I have to be when I got 39 of my friends who are out in the cold who weren't invited to the party, they haven't any connection with the host. Why would I not want to do this? And I'll, I'll read the quote exactly. He says, what kind of teammate would I be? What kind of friend if I didn't at least go out to the front door and shout out to them, hey, guys, this party is unbelievable. Come on in. Check it out. To me, friends, that's the gospel. We've got the best news on the planet. You know what? Some of you have really cool houses. What if we threw a party at your house and half the people there knew the Lord and the other half didn't? And we just ate and talked and drank non-alcoholic beverages and just got into conversations with one another. I just said that because I said drink. Somebody went, drink? Coca-Cola, whatever you want. Do you see what I'm saying? Because we have the best news on the planet. Fourth objection is, well, I'll just live a good life and hope people ask me why. That is so lame. No offense, that's just lame, all right? The thing is, it doesn't take just your life. There are a lot of moral people, right? This is your life and your lips. Romans 10, 14 and 15, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There are plenty of moral people who don't connect the dots that Jesus is the reason for the difference in your life. Evangelism and needs to be on our life and our lips. Well, I want to wrap up with this verse. It comes from the most famous b- verse in the Bible. It's called John 3, 16. And I want to read it to you in a way you've never seen it before. This is the greatest story ever told. For God, the greatest being, so loved the greatest act, the world, the greatest company that he gave, the greatest demonstration, his only begotten son, the greatest sacrifice, that whosoever, the greatest offer, believes in him, the greatest simplicity, 
should not perish the greatest loss, but have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. That's what I want my life to be about. I don't want to waste my life. Now, I realize I'm into a lot of things. And sometimes, you don't have to, remember I said we're, start, we're it's all about grace, not guilt here today. So it's okay if sometimes we're distracted by the issues of life. But when it's all said and done, when it's all said and done, I want to challenge you to live a life without regrets. Be all in. And whatever God is laying on your heart, if it's pounding, pitter-pattering, go, but I want to start a nonprofit ministry that does this, let's do it. Come on. Scott will help you find the money. Um, let, let's do what God's laying on your heart. Because I believe that we have the greatest story ever told. And so there's three ways to be involved in world missions. Very simple. You can give today, all right? If you put money in the offering place, you're giving to world missions. How does that work? We have a $910,000 budget. Elders made a decision a few years back that 10% of everything that comes through the plate goes to world missions. That's $91,000 this year. Of that $91,000, we divide it between local evangelism and world missions. $11,000 goes to local evangelism, and the far bulk of the money, $80,000, goes to missions much of which goes to support these 12 global missions partners around the world, okay? Everybody can give. Grace. Now, the story is I was coming, I was trying to think of a word that begins with G because you know I like to alliterate, and it was for prayer. And Chad says to me, well, how about grace? People pray for their meal. Grace. I said, that works. It's, it means prayer. And then we started, Chad and I were talking, and I thought, what if there are 12 missionaries that every time we sat down for family dinner, we picked a missionary for the month. So there's January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. And once a month, we pray for that missionary at our dinner with our family meal. Now, th the first objection to that is family meals, family dinners. Are we ever in the same place at the same time? I know that will take some negotiation, but maybe you actually sit down together and you adopt a missionary. Some of you say, well, I don't want to just adopt them for a month. Well, how about adopt one for a year? In our closing song, I'm going to put their, these pictures on the screen. I'm going to have you raise your hand. I'm adopting that missionary. We put their emails in here for you to communicate with them. Some emails are not in there because they're in sensitive, restricted access countries. You'll see me privately or one of our missions committee members to find out about how you could connect with those missionaries. So everybody can be involved in giving. Everybody can be involved in grace praying for our missionaries. And then lastly, maybe you want to go. And as we talk about that, our band's going to come up. And maybe this summer you're going to go with us to Ensenada, Mexico. Maybe you're going to go on a trip with Jim and Barb this next year. Maybe there's some other project. There, you know, we're not the only game in town. There's lots of things going on that you can be involved in going yourself. And if you want to go, maybe some of you are even thinking, maybe I don't know what my career is. Maybe, you know, John Lopez is talking about, I, I, I know Carrie's going, he's talking about quitting his job. He's a father of five. Hey, when God gets all of your heart, he does crazy things. Talk to Adam Williford, what he was doing before God called him to Mexico. 
And if you're that person, like, if I get alone and quiet with God for too long, I may do something that will change my life. What a concept. So I want you to think for a moment. Remember? Let me remind you again. It's about grace. It's not about guilt. But I know some of you want to do business with God right now for some, just a moment. I want you to begin to pray about these missionaries, and maybe you're going to adopt one, or you're going to pray one a month. I don't care. Maybe you're saying, hey, I got to go this summer. That'd be fine, too. We're going to sing this song, and then if you want to adopt one of these during the song, I'm going to get you a chance to actually raise your hand. I'm adopted in this missionary. Now, by the way, multiple people can adopt that missionary, all right? So let's sing together, and then we'll have a moment of commitment here in just a moment. In a moment, you're going to see these pictures scrolling on the screen. And now's the time for you to say, hey, I'm, I'm committing to these missionaries. And whether you adopt them for the year or you're praying through them for the month, everybody has a place. I want to close with this quote. One of my favorite pre preachers is Francis Chan. And I love this quote. And I'll close with this. It says, we are told to make disciples, but we often just sit and make excuses. Let's be a church without regret, no excuses. We're all in. We're going to give. We're going to say grace. We're going to go.